This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. What Aaron and I didn't expect as we started to look into instincts is that to try and integrate the instinct that you are weakest in, the instinct you kind of like to forget about, is distinctly uncomfortable in a way that trying to see things through other type lenses isn't. And I'm not sure if that's because instincts are very primal. They have to do with basic survival. But the fact remains that your blind spot is something you need to be very brave to start to engage with. In this episode, we're talking about ways you can start to practically engage with the instinct that comes last in your stacking and ways that Aaron and I have already started to do that. Okay, so we have talked about how the blind spot can actually feel pretty threatening because it feels like you have to give something really important up to give attention to this thing. John Luckovich, he has done a lot of work to think about how we can incorporate the blind spot. And it isn't natural. It's not going to come naturally, but none of this work comes naturally. It has to be something you choose to do. So we're going to talk through each of the three blind spots and some of the things that we can actually try and practice to to build it in. So we'll start with you, Erin. You have a self-preservation blind spot. And so why don't you talk us through what it is that self-preservation people are using as tools and how are you going to try and practice them? I just want to put it out there that if you remember, eights are part of the self-forgetting triad. So I think with this last, it is so hard to You're like double self-forgetting. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it is It is so far past my other two instincts that so it is um, That's true. been very hard to attain. You know, but I, I do think I am getting better at this. So the self-preservation drive is the drive of creating and sustaining our well-being. The self-preservation, as I understand it, is the need to create an environment where you're sustained, where your well-being is taken care of. You have control over your situation, your resources, and you thrive in development of yourself. So the tools that a self-pres individual uses are the following. So John would say the first is called grounding. So that is basically rooting to your center, finding a place of balance deep inside your body. Erin, that isn't natural to you. No. How would you activate that? This is hard for me because I was put in a situation where I had no choice, right? So I, it, it wasn't a conscious, it is a conscious decision. It's just, I felt like I didn't have a choice. So maybe it's just, I was left no choice, but I had hyperthyroidism. So my body was like on hyper alert So I needed these tools that a self-preservation person would probably use to get my body to calm down. And I wasn't functionable. So it wasn't like I could just ignore it and get on with my life, which I had done the rest of my previous years, right? Like I had always done throughout my life. So it was a different space. So for grounding, I mean, you walked in when I was meditating one day, right? Like I used meditation as a tool for probably an entire year and it was necessary for my survival. So what the difference between now and then is I don't need it anymore, but I do remember what it feels like to use it and how beneficial it is. So I will make a conscious choice sometimes, not every day, not every week, but I do it on an irregular basis now as a choice to take care of my body and know that it is good for me. But it is a yes, I'm going to do that today and say no to me, the the more fun thing. (laughs) It is super intentional. It is not, um, it is not something I just get to be like, meh. Yeah, I'm going to do that. That's fun. No, it is like, okay, I need this. 
I'm saying yes. So the next tool is called sensing, and that is a sensitivity to your own state using the senses and signals your body gives off. So as you've heard, Erin traditionally has been quite oblivious. And so you're learning to pay attention to physical feedback and impressions that your body, your actual physical body is giving off. Give us tips. Oh, I think that the difference now is that when it does that, I say, hold on. What are you saying? Do you talk to your body? Oh, yeah. I have to now. In my head, though. <laughs> yeah. I don't say it out loud. But I do literally say things like, what? Oh, you need, you, you're sick. You want to lie on the couch all day? Okay. You can do that because you're sick and you need this. And it's actually good for you. And changing the story in my past of like, rest is weak, I've turned it into rest is my story is strength because it's so hard for me to do that if I accomplish it, I've done the hard thing. So it becomes my strength. There is like a sense in which if you personify your body and you're like, I need to be kind to you. Yes. There is actually something that could be helpful about it. It was, it was one of the doctors I saw in the last couple of years that said to me, you need to stop being angry at your body for failing you. And you need to start thanking it for telling you what you need. Right. Right. And that story has been able to help me play out this self-pres piece. Again, I'm going to reiterate, it is intentional. Mm -hmm. It is not natural. The last bit is pragmatism. So self-pres people really, that is a uh, linchpin word. It's a key word is pragmatic. They're practical. That would be having a through line of attention, a linear attention that's oriented to process, progression. It's sensible. So that is not natural to you, my friend. How do you build that in? Channel your husband. Yeah, I was just going to say, I do it to appease my husband. (laughs) And I'm not going to lie. There's a little bit of that three-ish quality in there or that sexual social piece where if I can do that for him, he's more apt to say yes to all the fun I want to have. <laughs> because my husband is a very, very good man. And when like anything that works well, like there's give and take. And I know when I care well about what matters to him, he cares well about what matters to me. And so it just works in my favor. So maybe that's a little bit of like, I get what I want out of it because I don't process and intention is really not, I haven't learned that one very well yet. Let's just (laughs) call it what it is. (laughs) Overall, what you get with self-pres is they have a natural self-containing quality and you have the opposite. You're naturally fanned out and spread out. And so basically you are practicing valuing and being willing to self-contain. Okay, so I'm going to say that I'm practicing that every day right now because my core community, my safe place has been taken away. So I'm learning that I can be alone. I don't need to be in community. I can self-contain and I can be just fine in it. Mm -hmm. And I can grow in it in ways that I didn't know, right? Stretching muscles I've never used. It's painful. I'm not going to lie. It is painful and uncomfortable, but necessary and good. So if you were to sum up what you used to think it cost you to do this and what you now know it gains you, what would you say? What was your lens that said, but to be self-preservational, it's going to cost me this? Yeah, it's cost me my community. It's cost me the thing that makes me operate in the world. Right. It's cost me people Mm -hmm. and relationships. Mm -hmm. It's cost me my identity. It's made me have to rewrite my identity and change the story in my head of why I'm valuable and what is valuable. But it's given me compassion for others who don't operate out of my natural state. It's given me compassion for me to recognize that I alone am also valuable. Whereas I think with social, we're so outwardly focused on others 
that we forget we matter. Yes. And I'm not sure that I always know what I want because I'm so worried about what everybody else around me needs to make the group good. I think you're gaining slowly but surely the sense that you matter. It's still... It feels uncomfortable. Is uncomfortable, yeah. but... No, no, I am gaining it. And you've I named it. Am. You've named... I really actually... I'm scared I don't. And so you're starting to say yeah. that out loud. Which and is and just learning that I hold value even if there's yeah. no other human in the room. That's new for me. My social piece is to go in and do the things. Okay, go for it. If you take away the things, I don't know what to do anymore. So remember, the social drive is to connect, engage, and contribute with others. Someone who's blind and social usually has a difficult time being with, I would say, many other people at the same time. <laughs> yeah, more than and one. And understanding... Anybody more imp- than one. Yeah. <laughs> and then understanding how you impact them. Yeah. So people who are socially blind will often talk about being with the group as like exhausting small talk or like <laughs> just pointless hangouts that mean nothing. Totally. I picture like water cooler chit chat or something. <laughs> At the office? Yeah. That yeah. Sounds, in the office. Okay, I'm sorry, but that sounds pretty terrible to me too. I know. I, know, I don't I know. like that I'm kind just of saying, chit-chat. that's the lie I tell myself about yeah. what it is. Yeah. Talking so, about the weather. That's so funny. No, I don't want to talk about the weather either. So some of the tools the social instinct uses to connect. They use their availability. So opening their personal boundaries and inviting and receiving others in. The attention is going to be then what we've talked about, fanned wide open. And they're like allowing things to enter and leave their sort of field of attention. I know that what is being challenged here is for me to get out of my razor focused, like lost in my own little world thing and to actually in a room look up for once and actually start to scan the room and try and learn what's happening and pay attention to the dynamics. And it does feel mechanical. And I've started to practice like when I'm sitting in a coffee shop, normally I'm oblivious. I'm doing my thing. Even if there's no one around, I'm getting lost in my own inner musings. I'm now looking up and I'm spotting dynamics and I'm trying to actually pay attention and learn. So it's intentional. It is very, <laughs> again, very intentional. And I'm asking myself things like, I can't sense what other people feel, but I follow facial cues and things. <laughs> and I find that I'm so socially uncomfortable that if someone that I'm studying looks up at me, I'm the nerd that quickly looks away like a little creeper or something, because <laughs> I'm worried about that connection that I wasn't ready for. But I'm starting to study faces and go, what might they be feeling? I'm asking that kind of thing. Well, that's the next thing we're going to talk about because okay. it's called signaling. They okay. use signaling as sort of their sense to sense their impact on others and then like looking and watching the way they convey their feelings or the intentions appropriately with their, your own body language. Yeah. So the, I get into trouble with that is because it feels like even if I do sense what someone needs to accommodate what they need feels like I have to give up some of who I am. If I sense that someone needs me to be quieter or less, I rebel against that because I'm like, but then I'm not being me. And so the challenge is to actually say, I can adjust for you. Yeah. Like I can actually adjust for you or a sense that you're uncomfortable. So I will pull back. And my needs don't need to trump yours at this moment. That's exactly it. And it, that doesn't mean I'm not me. That doesn't mean I'm less me at all. It means I am making more room for us. To, to actually mm-hmm. like be in connection. I think that is a big problem with eights in general. Yeah. I think we have this feeling of like, we, we want to be. I was going to say, authentic. you know how you said that the tricky thing with having to um, incorporate self-pres for you is that it means that it's double hard because you're, you're double self-forgetting. So to become someone who suddenly re- has to remember themselves is really hard. I am double distinct. 
Like right. I am double you. unique, right? <laughs> yes. And so it feels like to access this, the threat is that I become less unique. I become one of the group. Right. I'm just lost in the group. And that feels really threatening. So that is me putting my arms around you social blind people and saying, I get you. And I realize why this is hard and scary, but you aren't losing you to do this. You're basically being you learning a new skill. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way to put it. So then the last tool they talk about using is the navigating, sensing the layers or boundaries of social environments and circumstances, kind of that overview sensation that we get, which then allows you to recognize like what's going on and how people are connecting and what's your role or their role and your relationship to it. Yeah, so of course, that's a challenge because I'm like the opposite of big picture. I'm like very, very micro, not macro. Probably what's happening is like I'm defending against feeling small and irrelevant. And that that's the story I'm telling myself is like, if I'm in a group, I won't matter because I really want to feel like I'm impacting. And when I'm in front of one person, I sure do feel that way. But when I'm in a group, how can I tell that I'm impacted? Isn't that so funny? Because <laughs> I feel like the more people we work together, the bigger the impact we make. Yes. Right? But your individual part you play gets spread out. Yeah. But the impact is bigger, right? Isn't so, that and I don't think it is. Like, I think your yeah. impact on one person is just as equally important as the social impact as a big group, right? right. But it feels the same. Totally. It's if, very interesting. If I hone in on one person, I'm missing the ability to do the big thing. Yeah. So, so the, the natural challenge then is what I need to do is I need to say, what role do I play in this group and get really confident that that matters, that yes. that role is like one part of a big picture that, and, and without me, there is a thing missing. I don't get to lose that need to be distinct. I actually, it's because of that distinct thing I bring that this group dynamic becomes richer and more important. Yes. So just to remember that you don't get lost in the whole, you are you in the whole, and that's really beautiful. So on the whole, someone who is social blind feels like the cost is really high because you put a lot of stock in being distinctly you. And so you feel like you're going to lose yourself. You worry that you'll feel small and hate feeling small. You worry that you might realize you were like bottom of the totem pole in terms of power. But of course, what it gains is, well, first of all, humility, being able to look around and actually see how uniquely valuable all these people are that make up this group. It gives you connection to the whole. And of course, everybody knows that's important. It just doesn't feel important. It's funny because you're missing your individual deep information that you carry inside you can mobilize an entire group of people in a much more impactful way if you come to the group with your skills. Yeah. Right? Like it's so beneficial to the group. What you said once that made me laugh is you're like, Joe, it would be more efficient. You'd basically basically outsource your awesomeness to more people at once. And I'm like, ah. You're like, but they get it all and I don't get anything back because I can't take in awesomeness from tell. 20 people yes, at the I same time. Tell. So you're right in the sense that in a group, you get to outsource what you bring to more people at once. That's awesome. But it's true. I get really disconnected yes. from what that means. It's because you need the one-on-one back. Totally. And again, we're saying that's okay. I belong that way. That's like yes. how I'm supposed to be. But we're just naming the lies that we tell ourselves and the ways that there's actual value and growth and growth in Available. incorporating that. Yeah. That's right. And mm-hmm. so, yes, I then will be more integrated into something really big 
that has actual momentum and power and it's really beautiful. And the truth is I actually long to be part of a big, huge family I'm connected to. I always have. You kind of... And the thing is, you actually are already. (laughs) You have a huge family and they are all together all the time and you bring them. So I think you, you naturally do have a social ability that you deny. Yeah, I haven't acknowledged the value of because it scares me a little. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Yet, everyone gets together. Your dad, (laughs) your brothers, your sister's whole family. They're not small. Your family is not small. And who feeds everyone? You do. Thank you for naming that. (laughs) Okay, this is where Aaron and I are kind of fumbling along because this is sexual blind spot and we don't have it. So we are going to... um, Fumble through this. Fumble through it. That's right. So Let us know where we're wrong, you sexuals. But I can definitely talk to what sexual drive actually means. So, um, again... To have the sexual instinct is to be kind of really connected to what's attractive, the flow of energy. Hooking in. Hooking in. I think that is a really good definition. That's an Emica, it's an Emica word. Yeah, that's right. So the tools that I use naturally and people who have the sexual first use is to pursue. So pursuing, it means locking in, hooking in to what attracts with a really focused energy and attention. And then you kind of get tunnel vision. And of course, there's a role for that because sometimes things really need to be attended to. A hurting person needs to really be seen. And so someone that doesn't have that. I think there are things you can do like you can put in headphones, you can turn off the distractions, shut the door, those very practical things you can do to then eliminate the exterior things. Put your phone on silent, just really practically speaking to then only focus in on what it is you're focusing on. I'm also thinking of a friend of mine who started to practice something called active listening or something like that. I've heard this. Yeah. And this will feel so gross to someone that is is, uh, sexual blind. So when you're sitting with somebody, first of all, you practice eye contact that probably is not going to come naturally and as this person is speaking to you you're going to say back to them what they said but it'll get more natural as you go but you're essentially saying i hear this this is what you're saying and you are and that is the way it's going to be mechanical at first you are connecting deeply and focusing in on that person right in front of you The next tool is magnetism. So that is that display. It's like a self-display. You're putting yourself out there energetically. Um, So in my case, apparently it's something actually energetic that I don't know I'm doing. But it's also just really wearing something you're really passionate about. It's doing your hair in a way that just is elaborate and beautiful and that really connects with you. You would really have to step back and say, what am I passionate about? Yeah. Not practical. Take the practicality out of all of it. Don't go there. Just what is it I love? What do I love? You cannot display passion without knowing if you have passion. That's right. You yeah, don't um, even know you're doing it. I don't know. I'm doing but it. when you do it, we all know what it is you're passionate about. Yeah. There's no hiding what it is you are feeling, what it is that matters to you. It all is right at the front. But if you don't even know what that matters, how can you be a magnet for other people when you don't know what is important? Yeah, I would imagine that you would have to ask yourself, what do I love? What do I identify with? What am I passionate about? What do I take pleasure in? And it's something that you never ask yourself. I would imagine if you're self-prez first, the first thing that would come, and you know what? I cannot imagine this. I've had these conversations with my husband. The practicality always comes back into play. So I'll say, don't you love this? And then it turns into, well, let me decide how practical that is. I actually totally have an example. A lot of 
the interviews we did this year where this came into play, they would do things like buy capsule wardrobes because that's very practical. So they'd buy only 10 pieces that mix and match. This and is my sister. So here is the challenge. <laughs> Go get a bright orange sweater that doesn't fit your color scheme. Like basically get something wildly impractical that doesn't fit your practical wardrobe and wear it on days where you need to feel a little bit and more energy, more, yeah, fire more energy it's and the fire. fire under you. Yep, yeah, that's right. And it really it would feel like a splurge. It would feel really irresponsible and like you are stepping out in a way that's really scary and you go and you buy some spangly sequins <laughs> bright polka dots Ooh. maybe something furry, for your house you leopard dress print your house. <laughs> fill your wardrobe with things that don't mix and match very well <laughs> So then the last thing is intensification, and that is amplifying and galvanizing energy. So it's that kind of activating thing. It has to do with letting down boundaries. It means that you're letting other people activate you. You are letting somebody affect you and letting their passion Again, affect you. Again, I would have to say, I would imagine you would have to be able to say stop when you started to reason Yes, with this piece. Right. Like allowing yourself to be free and then you pause and you got to stop the pause. Like when that pause comes, you just shut the door. No. Nope. And of course, the qualification is you wouldn't do this with just anyone. Yeah. You would have to practice with someone you trust. So you would kind of, I would suggest, think about sexual first people in your circle and you need to practice essentially letting their energy rub off on you and going with them for a little bit. Let yourself get caught up in their energy and shut down, Aaron's right, the narrative that says, this isn't safe, this is going to be chaotic and I can't really control this. And or it might- even just... Does this matter? Like, should I waste my yeah, time well, here? Is this going to make me money? Is this You'd be telling yourself to, it's stupid right? too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And inappropriate and just, yeah, dumb. It's like shutting, shutting passion. That's right. A lot of the narrative going on in a sexual lasts head is this is irresponsible. This is reckless. This is shameful. And that is this the doesn't cost. bring value. Yes. So the cost that we're talking about is you need to risk behavior that you see as irresponsible, shameful, reckless, to have passion, to feel alive. Yeah, that's what you gain. In a nutshell, what you gain is an actual body sensation of passion that you've never let yourself feel and a sense of aliveness that you thought was useless. And trust me, I think it's going to be addictive. <laughs> just Coming like, from the sexual. Yes, just, but, but I will agree with Joe because I use this space a lot and yes. it is so important. And I can, it's like, I feel an invitation happening as we're talking about this. My social last self is feeling the invitation to the allure of being at home in a group. I feel yes. the call. Erin is feeling the call to what it is to actually start Naturally, to know just her body. know my body, yeah. Yep. And I think you sexual blind spot people, you self-pres first people, you can start to feel the call to possibly learning what it is to be alive, to Fully. feel alive and passionate. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface. And you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor. (laughs) 